Well done, Mike. Good morning. How's everybody? Good. Welcome to the Parkway Church. What are we doing today? We uh, basically have a text that has 16 verses of random weird names. What is happening? In case you are new to Parkway, I want to let you know that we typically just don't preach through 16 verses of random names. What we do is we preach through different books of the Bible, and it makes us talk about things we normally wouldn't talk about. So normally I'm not sitting in my office thinking, you know what the people of Parkway need to hear? A bunch of weird Greek names. But that's what God has for us today. So as a reminder, all of Scripture is equally inspired. Amen? All of it is God's Word. Even the weird parts, even the uh, names, even the numbers, all those things are still written for your good so that you might know and love and trust Christ. And so uh, there's something for us from God even in this text today. So uh, this last week, I was uh, trying to look up some of the differences between ancient letter writing, like the book of Romans, and modern letter, ri- letter writing, and I looked up some uh, funny letters and some funny notes that I'd like to start uh, by sharing those with you. So here are some notes that I found online. These are all true notes. Here's a few of them. The first one had a sticky note and a clean kitchen, and it said this, I spent an hour and a half cleaning this kitchen. If you mess it up, I will cut you. Love, mom. Okay? For her kids. I found a letter written by a little girl to Santa, and it says this, Dear Santa, you better bring me a pony this year or there will be consequences. Okay? So this is a little girl that knows what she wants. She's going places. She's uh, going to be an attorney or something. Uh, A guy gave this note to his neighbor, a guy that lives in his neighborhood. This is a true story. Here's the note. It says this. A group of your neighbors wish to announce that the one-way frosty glass in your bathroom is facing the wrong way. Okay? That's a tough note to get. That's a tough note to get. And then my favorite one, there was a guy who lived in an apartment complex, and he left this note on uh, his neighbor's door. It said, Dear residents of 812, I regret to inform you that I took your doorknob last Saturday. I was on drugs and thought it was a muffin. Okay? Now, as I was looking up some of these differences between ancient letter writing and modern letter writing, you see a few things. So, for example, when we write letters, we have a tendency to sign our name at the end. It's actually kind of weird. You read a whole letter from somebody and then at the end figure out who it's from, or else you have to jump down to the bottom at the beginning of the letter right? Ancient letters are also much, much longer. Why? Because if you forget to say something, you can't send a text or an email or call them. You can't hop on an airplane and just, you know, fly over to Corinth or whatever it is. You have to say everything when you're saying something. And so one of the things that we are struck by this morning as we're going through the book of Romans is it's not so much a book as it is an ancient letter, right? It's this long, what's called an epistle, kind of this ancient letter. And one of the things that's very common in ancient letters is to have a list of who your posse is. Have a list of who your people are, okay? So what Paul is going to do in this list is he's going to tell the church at Rome, greet these people, trust these people, these are my friends, and he's also going to send his greeting to that church there. So that's what we're going to be dealing with in this text, but uh, there are some good, helpful things uh, that we can pull out of this text even for our life today. Now, before I get into the text, I need to give a disclaimer. This text is going to mention a lot of women who are being used in ministry. Yes and amen? Amen. For most of church history, you could just read this list and say, God uses a bunch of people in ministry, and it's awesome. Now, because we live, though, in a hyper-feminized society, which we do, I don't know if you've lived under a rock until now or not, but we live in a hyper-feminized society, there are people who would say, because women are mentioned in this list and used by God, therefore they should hold the office of elder or pastor or preacher teach over men, despite the fact that Paul explicitly says that's what they cannot do. Okay? So I want to show you a text, 1 Timothy 2, 
11 through 12, up on the screen, says this. Let a, woman learn, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Now, if you're wondering, Zach, what does that mean? That sounds really retrogressive. That sounds really uh, backwards. We've got a bunch of lessons on what that does and doesn't mean. Here's all you need to know for our text today, okay? There are some teachers out there, some churches, some pastors who will say, because God uses women in ministry, therefore they should be used in the direct ministries that God has said they should not be used that way. And so what I have to do as I walk through this text is something I shouldn't have to do, but culture forces me to do, which is to say, here are the ways women can be used in ministry, but here are the things we have to guard against. So I'm forced to do both, although I shouldn't have to. I should just be able to get up here and preach it. So I just want you to know I'm not part of like the He-Man Woman Haters Club. I like women. I married one. And so I just want you to know that uh, we have to deal with some of those things as we get into this text. Our view of men and women here at Parkway is the traditional Christian view, which is simply this that men and women are equal in value, that we are equal in personhood. Men and women equally bear the image of God. Men and women are equally loved by God. When it comes to what it means to be a man and what it means to be a woman, we are equal in our essence and in our being, okay? We do hold, though, that in the, in the, in the home and in the church, men have been called specifically by God, though, in these positions of leadership, okay? So where we differ is in our role. It's not that we differ in our essence or our value. So keep that in mind as we get into this text. Let's pray, and then we will jump into verse 1 and just do a bunch of weird name stuff. Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you for your word. We confess that all Scripture is breathed out by God, that is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God might be complete and equipped for every good work, and that includes a list of a bunch of people that we don't even know who they are for most of them. And so we thank you for this text, and we just ask that you, by the Spirit, would open our eyes. We confess that your word is clear, but we confess that our heart is not clear. And so we need the Spirit to uh, defog and defrost the glasses of our hearts so that we might see this text. We love you and thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Let's get to verse 1. I commend to you our sister Phoebe. That's not Phobe, okay? Our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church of Kincrea that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you, for she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. Let's look at verse 1 and see how it starts, and then I'll tell you where there's some controversy. Verse 1 says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Kincrea. Okay? Now, here's what you need to know. The Greek word here for servant is the Greek word diakonos. It's where we get our word deacon. So there's a question, even as this text, as we kick off this text, which is this, this question that comes up, is Phoebe a servant of the church generally, or is she an actual deacon? The word can mean either. The word diakonos can be used just as someone who serves. It's used of people, for example, in the ancient world who wait tables. I like to say that when I worked uh, as a waiter at Chili's, I was a Chili's deacon, okay? It can be used just in a general sense. Or it can be used to talk about someone who's an actual deacon, someone who holds the office of deacon. Let me show you how a few different ways that uh, uh, English translations take this. The NIV takes it this way. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deacon of the church at, or in Kincrea. The NRSV, which is a great translation, says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deacon of the church at Kincrea. The NASB, which is a very literal translation, says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, who is a servant, and then in the footnotes puts, or deaconess, of the church which is at Kincrea. And so the question is, is Phoebe just a servant of the church? She's just a lady that helps the church in some way, or is she a deacon? Some will say, well, Zach, she has to be an actual deacon because it links her to a church. She's from a church of Kincrea, okay? 
The problem with that is that the word diakonos, for example, is applied to Timothy, who's linked to the church at Ephesus, and it's applied to Epaphras, who's linked to the church at Colossae, and yet neither of them are deacons. Some will say, well, Zach, what we can do is we can open elsewhere in the Bible and see whether or not a woman can be a deacon. Let's turn open to 1 Timothy 3 and see whether or not a woman can be a deacon. The problem with that is that the word in Greek for woman and the word in Greek for wife are the exact same word, okay? It's the word gune, gunaikos. It's where we get the word gynecology, a study of women's health, okay? My wife, Katie, she's my wife. She's also my woman, okay? That's not how I introduce her. I'm not a caveman, but that's what she is. So it's difficult in 1 Timothy 3. Is it saying women likewise, meaning being deacons, or is it saying wives likewise, meaning these deacons' wives? And so it gets into a lot of tricky things. Here's what you need to know. Is this saying that Phoebe is a servant generally, or is it saying that she's a deacon? Here's what you need to know. It doesn't matter which way you take it, because either way, she doesn't have authority or are teaching over men. The reason this verse freaks people out is because many of you grew up in a Baptist church where you had one single pastor, despite the fact that the Bible teaches that you should have a plurality of pastors, and you had a board of deacons. And the deacons in your church were not a serving body like they are in the New Testament. They were kind of a governing body, and they made decisions. So then when you hear that Phoebe might be a deacon, it blows your mind because it sounds like Paul is giving her some level of spiritual authority, but that's not the case. Do you know what female deacons did in church history? What are called deaconesses, the Greek words diakonisa. You do have female deacons in church history. Here's what they did. This is really profound, ready? They only ministered to women. That's all they did. If, uh, if a woman was sick, you would send a deaconess to that woman's home because it'd be inappropriate for you as a man who's not married to her to go into her bedroom. Or if women were getting ready for baptism to avoid some of the awkwardness in the water of where you can and can't touch, you would have a female that would help you out with that so that it would not be awkward, okay? So I guess what I'm saying is this. If you take this to mean that Phoebe is a servant, no problem. That doesn't challenge our view of complementarianism or our view of the roles of men and women. We have a bunch of women here at Parkway that just come up during the week and they help set up the classrooms and we have a lady that does our bookkeeping and they print out materials and I jokingly call them the Phoebes. Okay? But if you want to say here that Phoebe is a deaconess, that doesn't cause a problem because a deaconess would only minister to women. She wouldn't have authority over men. She wouldn't have authority uh, in the church. She wouldn't even have authority to, uh, to teach or something like that. So either way, if you understand what a deacon is and you especially understand what the early church thought a female deacon was, you don't get into trouble. Now, having said that out of one side of my mouth, I want to still talk about this great ministry that Phoebe has. Verse 2 that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you. For she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. Look at all the ways that God is using this godly woman, Phoebe. She most likely is the person who brought the letter to Rome, by the way. Most scholars think she's the one that delivered the letter to Rome. Out of all the people that Paul could have chosen to deliver this premier letter to the church at Rome, he chose this lady named Phoebe, and she delivered it, and she's obviously successful because we have the book of Romans. She's probably a woman of high social standing, okay? She may have contributed financially and in hospitality. Notice that the text calls her a patron. A patron is somebody who gives money, who helps support. She might have even helped house the Apostle Paul. Notice that she's not to be treated less. It says that, uh, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints. You can't say, Phoebe, you're just a girl doing your girl ministry. No, Paul says that she's to be welcomed in a way worthy of the saints, that she's been of great help to the Apostle Paul. 
So let me just say it this way. In a culture where the roles of men and women are very confused or frustrated or whatever, there are many ways, if you are a woman, that God can use you in ministry. You can be a missionary. You can write books. You can teach other women. You can teach children. You can make disciples. You can go to seminary. You can do all these kind of things, okay? The one thing that you can't do is two functions. That sounds weird. The one thing you can't do is two things. These two functions. You may not teach or exercise authority over men within the local congregation, okay? Doesn't mean you can't teach men math. That's not the context. Doesn't mean you can't be over a man in authority in a business like a female boss or something like that. But specifically in the Bible, it would say that the roles of leadership in the home and in the church, the highest levels of leadership, are reserved for men, okay? So let me give you a list of some women that God uses in the New Testament, and it's a bunch. I have not included all of them. There's too many. Let me just give you a list of a few. Elizabeth, Lois, Eunice, Joanna, Tryphena, Martha, Lydia, Phoebe, Priscilla, all the Marys, Anna, Rhoda, Salome, Tabitha, and more. There's a bunch of women that God uses in Scripture. Amen? Amen. Now, here's a list of all the women who are elders or pastors in the New Testament. There's none. Not one. The same is true, by the way, in the Old Testament. Here's a list of some uh, women that God used in the Old Testament. Sarah, Rebecca, Leah, Jael, Hannah, Abigail, Ruth, Esther, Deborah. Deborah gets to be in a political and military leadership. She's a judge over Israel. And here's a list of how many of those women or any women in the Old Testament are priests. None. In both the Old Testament and the New Testament, the highest levels of spiritual leadership are reserved for men. Okay? Now, if you don't like that, please do not get mad at me. I'm just giving you the position that Christians have always held, Protestant, Catholic, and Greek Orthodox, for 2,000 years up until the modern era. Now look at verse 3, verses 3 through 6. Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risk their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church in their house. Greet my beloved Epinatus, who is the first convert to Christ in Asia. Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Now look at verse 3, how it starts. Greet Prisca and Aquila. Do you know who that is? Elsewhere, this couple is called Priscilla and Aquila. Why here is she given the name Prisca? And in the book of Acts, for example, she's given the name Priscilla. Okay, to do this, think back to fifth grade English. Does anyone know what a diminutive is? A diminutive. A diminutive is where you take a normal word and you make it cutesy. You make it little. You make it small, right? So you might have a dog. That's the normal word. The diminutive is doggy. Little dog. Smushy dog. Cute dog. You don't call a Rottweiler with a spiked collar a doggy, right? It's a small thing, okay? Or a book. The diminutive is a booklet. You have a cigar and then you have a cigarette, a little cigar, okay? That's what a diminutive is. And we use this not only in English, we use this in Greek, you use this in Spanish. You can have a perro, a dog, or a perrito, a little dog. You can have a mama or a mamita, a little mama, okay? And we use this with names as well. And you see that here, you use this with names. So Tim becomes Timmy. Jeff becomes Jeffy. Carl becomes Carly, I guess, right? <laughs> or in Spanish, Carlito, little Carl, okay? These are what are known as diminutives, and that's what you have here. So her grown-up name, her grown woman name is Prisca. That's the name on her business card. 
But to her friends and her family, they would call her Priscilla, little Prisca, cute Prisca. That's kind of the idea, but it is the same person. Now, who are Priscilla and Aquila? They are this like super husband-wife ministry team in the New Testament. They're mentioned in the book of Acts. They're mentioned here in Romans. They're mentioned in 1 Corinthians and in 2 Timothy, and they do several things. They help serve the ministry of the gospel. They are willing to risk their life. Notice that they've put their life on the line for the sake of the Apostle Paul and the gospel here in this text. Paul says that they risk their necks for him, okay? They help facilitate a church in their home, and in Acts, they help teach the Bible to a guy named Apollos. There's a guy in the book of Acts named Apollos who gets up and gives this sermon, and Priscilla and Aquila pull him aside, and they say, hey, man, you crushed 80% of that sermon, but here's where you're off on 20%, and they teach the Bible, okay? We have a lot of Priscilla's and Aquila's in our church. Do you know who they are? There are community group leaders. Our community groups, almost all of them, are led by a husband-wife team that do ministry, that have people in their home, that pray for people, that encourage the people, etc. And that's what we see here with Priscilla and Aquila. Now look in verse 5. I want you to see something interesting. In verse 5, we are told something about the early church. It says that they met in homes. They met in homes. Why in the early church would you not build a huge building and put on your sign, First Presbyterian Rome, or First Baptist Rome, or something like that. One, you didn't have any money. The church was all made of poor people. And two, you would be killed. The early church was persecuted. You would not say, Christians here, please come kill us, on your flashing neon sign. And so what the churches would do is they would have to meet in smaller locations. They would meet in people's homes. They would meet in catacombs. Sometimes they would go off in the woods, wherever it might be. And so we see here that churches are meeting in people's homes. Look at Acts 2, 42 through 47. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Okay? So, every now and again, someone will ask me, Zach, what do you think about house churches today? What do you think about house churches today? And here's my answer. If you're doing them the right way, they're very biblical. There's nothing wrong with house churches. There's kind of a big house church movement right now. It is totally fine to have churches that don't meet in this building. You you realize this building is not the church, okay? We are not in God's house. God is everywhere. He doesn't just live in like McKinney, Texas or something, okay? You are the church. You are God's house. You are where the Spirit dwells, okay? The people are the church. This building burns down. We go meet in a field somewhere. The Parkway Church is doing just fine, okay? So it's totally fine to meet in people's homes. But here's my qualifier. If you're going to do a house church, you have to do all the things the Bible requires of a church. You have to have a plurality of elders for your house church. You have to have correct doctrine, which might helpfully be summarized in a statement of faith. You have to do church discipline in your house church. You have to do baptism. You have to do communion. You have to send out missionaries. You have to send out evangelists, etc. If you're going to do all the things the Bible says you have to do to be a church, go for it. What some people do, though, is they were burned by a church or became bitter with the church when they were younger. And so they really just meet for a Bible study in their home with their family or their friends, and then they call that church. That's not church. That's you actually being mad and not wanting to meet with the people of God, just wanting to meet with your family, and then call that a church. So, in summary, house churches, yes, but you've got to be a church. You can't just be a Bible study that is bitter at the church. Now, in verse 5, we're told something amazing about the gospel. 
It goes to all nations. Notice this. Eponidas is the first convert in Asia. Now let's explain where that is. When you think Asia, you think China or, uh, you know, Japan or South Korea or something like that. Maybe Russia. We don't typically think of Russia as an Asia, but it is, right? That's not what Asia means in the New Testament, okay? In the New Testament, Asia means what is east of Greece. In modern-day Turkey is where Asia is. But let me tell you why this is still really amazing. In the book of Acts, there's this promise that the gospel, which is a Jewish message which is completed in Christ, which is what Christianity is, it's really the completion of Judaism, will begin in Jerusalem, Judea, then extend to Samaria, then extend to all the earth. Notice how just within one generation, just within the lifetime of the Apostle Paul, the gospel has gone from Jerusalem as far as Turkey. Remember, this is not an age of Uber or Lyft. This is not an age where you had air travel or internet. This is where you either walked or rode some sort of beast of burden to get where you needed to go, and it took forever, and yet you see the gospel blowing up and exploding within the first century. Now look at verse 7. There's some more controversy here. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen, which means they're Jews, and my fellow prisoners. They are well known to the apostles, and they were in Christ before me. A few things I want you to see in verse 7. Notice that these people have suffered for the sake of the gospel. At some point, they were prisoners for the sake of the gospel. Let me say this very clearly to you. If you are a Christian, you will suffer and you will be persecuted. Even here in America, if you don't believe it's coming, you are insane. It is coming. Mark my words, over the next you know, years to decades, you will see your freedom of speech eroded, you will see your freedom of religion eroded, etc., but know that it is coming. Don't let that surprise you. The Bible's very clear that that's what's going to happen. There's a, a literary critic, a very famous literary critic, a guy named Terry Eagleton. He's a guy from the UK. He's a professor over there. And I was listening to a lecture that he gave, and he said this as a literary critic. He says, I read the New Testament as a literary critic, and to me it seems like this, that if you claim to be a Christian and you don't end up dead, you've got some explaining to do. That's what he said. As a non-Christian, as a secular literary critic, that's what he said about the New Testament. Now, let me tell you why verse 7 is rife with controversy. There's two big issues that come up in this text. First is, who is Junia? Is Junia a man, or is that a woman's name? That's a controversy in this text. And the reason that that's controversial is because there are several ways to translate the second half of verse 7. In your ESV, it says they are well known to the apostles. In Greek, it can mean a bunch of different things. In Greek, it can mean they're apostles. That's why it's important to know whether or not Junia is a woman. In Greek, it can mean they're great apostles. Among all the apostles, they're super ones. And it, or it could mean that they're well known to the apostles. So we've got to figure out two things. Is Junia a man or a woman? And how should we translate the second half of verse 7? So let's do that in order. Is Junia a man or a woman? I think, and I'm going to support to you the idea that I think that Junia is a woman. Let me explain why. There are some people that think that Junia here is a man, that Andronicus, which is very clearly a man's name, and this would be Junia, but it would be a man's name. Now, here's the problem with that. We do not have one reference in all of Greek literature to this contracted form of the word as a man's name, not one. We have one reference to a related form of the word, but that one reference comes from an early church leader that's talking about Romans 16. So it doesn't give us any new information. It doesn't tell us whether or not it's a man or a woman's name. It's a circular argument. 
I think that this is a man's name because the one reference we have to it, which, by the way, isn't even the same form of the word, is a man's name. Why do you know that? Because it's a man's name in Romans 16. It becomes a circular argument, okay? I think that it is a woman's name. It's not, I'm not positive. I wouldn't bet a billion dollars on it, but for the following reasons. All three references we have to this word and this name outside of the New Testament in Greek literature are all clearly women, okay? So the case is at least 300% stronger for saying that it's a woman. Next, this is probably a husband-wife team. This is probably Andronicus and his wife, Junia. We've already seen husband-wife teams in this list, like Priscilla and Aquila, and there are more than that that we'll see later on in the list, but this is probably a husband-wife team. Next, the name Junia in Latin is very common, and it is a female name. This might be her Latin name. After all, Paul is writing to the church in Rome. If it's a Greek name, it's more likely that the Romans used the term Junia because they took it from Greek as a female name than that they took a man's name and turned it into a Latin woman's name. And then lastly, the majority opinion among scholars today is that this is a woman. The majority of scholars from the 1st to the 13th century believed it was a woman. It's only after the 13th century in the church that you get this idea that it might be a man's name, and it's only because they're afraid that the text is calling Junia an apostle. That's why they decide to change it. So I think most likely Junia is a woman. Now, that may or may not cause problems depending on how we then translate the rest of verse 7. So look up at your text. It says, Greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners. They are well known to the apostles, and they were in Christ before me, meaning they became Christians first. Now, there are different ways to translate in Greek the end of verse 7. Let me show you a few. The first one comes from the New Century Version. It says this, Greetings to Andronicus and Junia, my relatives who were in prison with me. They are very important apostles. They were believers in Christ before I was. Or the uh, NRSV, New Revised Standard Version. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my relatives who were in prison with me. They are prominent among the apostles, and they were in Christ before I was. Meaning, of all the apostles, they're super great ones, okay? So there's a bunch of different ways to translate and interpret verse 7. What are we supposed to think about this? Well, let me give you two options that are really technical, and then I'm going to come back and explain what you need to take. I want to give you more than you need so you can impress your friends And then I just want to give you what I think the answer is, okay? One way to solve this dilemma, because Junia most likely is a woman, is to understand here when they are called apostles, it doesn't mean capital A, big A, apostles like the 12, okay? Not like guys like Peter or John or something like that. The word apostolos in Greek, the word apostle can just be a generic reference for somebody who's sent out. Jeff talked about that this morning in theological equipping. Your mailman is an apostle, He's sent out with a message, which he must deliver through rain or sleet or dark of night, right? In that sense, Phoebe's an apostle. She comes with Paul's message to the Romans, okay? So that's one solution is to understand Paul's not saying that they can, like, write Scripture and they've seen the resurrection. He's simply saying that they're those that the church used, those that the church sends out. But I think that there is a better explanation of how to translate this verse, and I'm going to say this. It's very technical, so bear with me, and then I'm going to explain what it means. There's a scholar at Dallas Theological Seminary, a very, uh, very good Greek scholar, a guy named Dan Wallace, okay, Daniel Wallace, and he recently had an article published at the, through Cambridge University Press where he argues that the way that this should be translated is that Andronicus and Junia are well known to the apostles. Not that they themselves are apostles, but that they're well known to the apostles. 
What he says is in Greek when you have the word known plus in plus dative pronouns, it means that it is somebody who's well known to somebody else. You see this in literature outside of the Bible. You see this in the Psalms of Solomon, the same construction. You see this in the poet Euripides, and you see this in the rhetorician Lucianus. What does that mean? That just sounded like you guys are going to beat me up and stuff me in a locker. What does that mean? Here's what Wallace is saying. The best way to translate this is exactly the way that your ESV has translated it, okay? That Andronicus is a man, Junie is a woman, they're a husband-wife team, and they're well-known to the apostles. That's how this same kind of Greek phrase occurs elsewhere in Greek literature outside of the Bible. But even if you didn't know any of that technical stuff, how do you know that Junia is not a capital A apostle like Paul? Because the Bible doesn't contradict the Bible. You don't have to be a rocket surgeon to know that. Paul is not saying, this is Junia. She does the one thing that I've already written explicitly she cannot do. Okay? That's, that's very clear. You don't need extra training. You don't need to know Greek. That's just like basic common sense. What people do with Romans 16 is they create what is called a category mistake. It's a, it's a logical fallacy. Anybody, everybody know what a category mistake is? It's where you put one thing in one category into a category to which it does not belong. So when your kids come up to you and they say, Daddy, what color is time? That's not a good question. It's a bad question. It's a category mistake. Time has no color. How big is God's hand? Well, God doesn't have a hand, literally. He's everywhere. He's spirit. He doesn't have a body, right? Well, this happened with my son last week, and I thought about this. So right now we're teaching my son. He's three. We're teaching the difference between left, right, and middle. So we'll put out three objects, and we'll say, which one's on the left, which one's on the right, and which one's in the middle? And so he was putting on his shoe, and we said, hey, buddy, what foot is that? And he said, it's my middle foot. <laughs> and we said, no, 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 you don't have a middle foot. That's your right foot, right? It's a category mistake. Here's the category mistake a lot of people make, even scholars who should know better. They say, because this, pot, this passage in the Bible gives some descriptive passages of women in ministry, therefore we can ignore the prescriptive passages that are very clear that Paul gives us elsewhere. God is not a schizo. God does not contradict himself. God's word is consistent. Whatever this passage means, it can't mean the opposite of what Paul, who also wrote Romans, wrote elsewhere, okay? Verses 8 through 10a. Greet Ampliatus. There's a good name for you. Any of you women who are pregnant looking for a a good name for your son, might I recommend Ampliatus? I uh, promise you he'll go far in the business world. Greet Ampliatus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ. And my beloved Stachus. That's a Greek name. It's not Stachys or something like that. It's Stachus. Greet Apelles, who is approved in Christ. Now, here we are given four names, and we know nothing about these people. They are not mentioned anywhere else in the New Testament. So how is this beneficial for us as Christians in 2019, okay? Well, let me give you a few things that we can still pull out of this text, even though it's just a list of some random names. One, I want you to see that God uses ordinary people. God uses regular people. Being involved in ministry is something you should all be doing. That doesn't mean you have to go to seminary and become a professional pastor or something like that. God wants to just use you where you are. If you're a Christian, God has given you talents. He has given you desires. He has given you certain giftings that you're to use to make disciples wherever you are, okay? I'll give you an example. I like baseball, okay? I'm terrible at baseball, but I like baseball. So you know what I did? I met a guy who was a former professional pitcher, and we became friends, And he taught me about baseball, and I helped counsel him through his marriage, and we helped disciple each other, and it was super fun because baseball's the best. 
I like shooting and tactics. So you know what I do? I have several friends that are former military guys, and we go shoot, and we work on room clearing, and we work on all this tactical stuff, and then we sit down and talk about what does Paul mean by election in Romans, and we disciple each other. Take the things you already love, take the things you're already passionate about, take the things you're already good at, and use them to make disciples. These are just regular people we know nothing about other than the fact that they serve the gospel, okay? The other thing I want you to see is that their primary identity is nothing in them. It's that they're in Christ. That's their primary identity. Notice the titles that are given to them. Beloved in the Lord, fellow worker in Christ, one who's approved in Christ. When you become a Christian, all the other identities that you have, all the other ways you see yourself are minimized, and Christ becomes your ultimate identity. So I have several identities. Who is Zach? I'm a husband. I'm a father. I'm a pastor. I'm a Texan. Amen. I'm a Texas Rangers fan. But when I became a Christian, the primary identity over my life was Christian, was saint, was adopted child of God, is forgiven. That becomes my new primary identity. What unites us as Christians is greater than that which divides us. Let me say that again. What unites us as Christians is greater than that which divides us. We don't know who these people are. We don't know what they like. We don't know uh, a lot of things about them. We simply know that it doesn't matter who they are because the Christianity and the story of God is not about us. It's about God, okay? It's about God. Now, look at verses 10b through 15, okay? Here goes a bunch of names. Here we go. Greet those who belong to the family of Aristobulus. Greet my kinsman Herodian. Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. Greet those workers in the Lord, Tryphena and Tryphosa. Greet the beloved Persis, who has worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. Greet Asuncritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Patrobus, Hermas, and the brothers who are with them. Greet Philologus, his name means lover of the word. Greet Philologus, Julia, Nereus, and his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. A few things I want you to see in this text. First, look in verse 10. There's a guy here named Aristobulus. Let me tell you why that's interesting. Herod the Great had a grandson named Aristobulus, and we don't know whether or not this is the same guy. So from history, we know that Herod the Great had a grandson with the same name. We don't know if this is the same guy. We also don't know if this guy's a Christian. Notice that this letter isn't written directly to him. It's written to his family. So many scholars think that means that uh, Aristobulus here is either not a Christian or he had already died, which is why the letter is addressed to his family. Now look in verse 13. I'll show you something else that's interesting here. It mentions a guy named Rufus. That's not a great name. It's going to be real hard to pick up girls if your name is Rufus. But let me tell you why Rufus is interesting. He's mentioned possibly elsewhere in the Gospels. Look at this, Mark 15, 21. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and who? Rufus to carry the cross. This might be, and again, we don't know for sure, but this might be the same Rufus that's mentioned in the Gospels. Can you imagine that? If your dad was the guy that helped Jesus carry the cross, that might be the same guy who is mentioned here. Now, with a lot of these names, we don't know much about these people. So what are we supposed to learn from God in this text? What what are verses 10b through 15 supposed to teach us? Here's what I want you to see. The gospel picks up all kinds of people. I don't know if you know this or not, but we live in a very, very divided society. If you didn't know that, turn on the news or get on social media or go to a public place and express your opinion and people will murder you, okay? That's where we live. We live in a very divided society. What this text shows us 
is that God brings unity, and it is only the gospel which is the solution to that disunity, okay? You see men and women in this text. You see the, the things our culture divides over. We divide over race. We divide over authority and power, socioeconomic status. We divide over gender. We divide over all these things. Here you see that it's the gospel that's the solution to that division. Let me show you a passage out of Galatians, which is very similar. Galatians 3.28 says this, there is neither Jew nor Greek. Notice that it doesn't say both. It's trying to downplay our differences, not upplay them. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. What it's saying is your primary identity is not race, not socioeconomic status, not uh, your gender, none of those things. Your identity is as a Christian. That is the primary thing that hangs over your life. I want you to see those same things here in this passage. So think back to this passage here in, uh, in the text. I want you to see a few things. Notice that this text contains Jews and Greeks. We've already seen some Jews. Priscilla and Aquila in the book of Acts are said to be Jews. Andronicus and Junia are said to be Paul's kinsmen, which probably means they're Jews. But look how many Greek names we have here. Hermes. Who's Hermes? He is the messenger god in Greek mythology. Do you name your kid Hermes if you're a Jew? Probably not. Olympus, where the Greek gods reside. Narcissus. Remember that guy from Greek mythology who liked like looking at himself in the water and these kind of things? Narcissus. You have these very Greek names. Notice that the gospel unites Jew and Gentile. It unites people of different races, okay? Different ethnicities. Now, we don't know for sure if these are, these could be Jews with Greek names, but considering that Paul wrote Romans to a church that consisted of Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians, it's likely to assume that you see Jews and Gentiles in this list. Next, notice that the gospel brings together those with authority and those without authority, those in power and those that don't have power, the slave and the free. How do we know that? Several studies have been done in this passage by scholars of what kinds of people had these names, and many of these names are names that would have been attributed to slaves. People name their slaves certain names over and over again, and those are some of the same names we see here. And several of these names are common names among freedmen, those who were slaves and then had been freed. So here you see that the gospel unites slave and free. And then lastly here, notice how many women are mentioned in this text. There are some nine women mentioned throughout verses 1 through 16, that in Christ there's no male and female, okay? That we are all one in Christ. What the gospel does is it takes people that the world has rejected. It takes people that normally wouldn't get together. It takes people who normally wouldn't hang out, and it unites them in Christ. Not just unites them for no other reason, unites them in Christ. Amen? That's one of the things that we see powerfully in this passage, okay? Let me show you an interesting quote. This comes from a philosopher from the second century, a guy named Celsus, who is by no means a Christian. He hates Christians. He writes against them. Listen to what he says that the early church was made up of. Far from us, say the Christians, be any man possessed of culture or wisdom or judgment. See, he hates Christians. Their aim is to convince only worthless and contemptible people, idiots, slaves, poor women, and children. These are the only ones whom they manage to turn into believers. To that I say, amen. God chooses the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. Look around. Look around. God doesn't choose the best and the brightest. God chooses broken, hurting people. That's who Christ saves. When God wants to transform the world, He doesn't choose 12 Harvard Business School grads. He chooses uneducated fishermen 
and guys that are kind of shady and carry swords, and guys that were tax collectors, and that's who God uses. Verse 16. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. Okay. What does it mean when the Bible commands us to greet one another with a holy kiss? It commands us to do that five times. Okay. So if you're a single guy right now and you're thinking, man, I've been waiting to join the welcome team. I've just, I've been waiting to join our little welcome team. And that way, as soon as I open the door and there's some cute girl, I can say, hey, babe, we're a Bible-believing church here at Parkway. We take the Bible very seriously, okay? If that is you, you might not know that our security team will shut you down, okay? They will shut you down. What's going on here? In the first century, the way that you would greet someone that you cared for was by giving them a kiss. Not like a dip kiss, not like that, but rather, uh, you know, you ever seen like a mafia movie, like The Godfather? where it's like, eh, and you kind of kiss them on the cheek and kiss them on the other cheek, right? It's something that I'm, I think like French guys do today. I won't give you my opinion on French guys, but it's something that they do today, right? They kind of kiss each other. The idea is it's a familial kiss. Who do you kiss? Your family. You kiss your spouse, you kiss your kids, you might kiss your grandparents, whatever it might be. The idea, though, is that they're greeting one another warmly, which leads me to my next point, which is this. You often have to separate what the Bible is actually commanding versus merely the cultural expression of that command. Let me say that again. When you're reading the New Testament, let me just give you a tip on how to interpret the Bible. Let's do a little hermeneutics. You always need to be asking yourself, what specifically is this passage commanding? Because sometimes that's different than the cultural expression of the command. This text is commanding us to greet one another warmly. We do that in Texas with a handshake or a hug or a warm smile. If we were to literally kiss one another, it would actually do the opposite of this passage. It would cause a lot of weirdness. It would not make us feel close. It would make us feel really like I needed to call an attorney, right? So you have to understand, when you're reading the Bible, you need to always ask yourself, what's, what's actually being commanded versus what's just the cultural expression of this command? Here this text says we're to greet one another with a holy kiss. That doesn't mean we literally kiss one another. It means we greet one another warmly, okay? Elsewhere, the Bible will say that women cannot speak in church. Does that mean they can't speak at all? Like you come in the door and I'm like, hey, Deborah," and you're like, no, I can't, I can't. Is that what it means? No, we know it doesn't mean that because elsewhere Paul says that a woman can pray or prophesy publicly. A woman can come up here on stage and pray for the congregation and that is completely biblical even though she's speaking. So it's not forbidding all speaking. What it's forbidding in context is a woman being disruptive, her judging her husband's prophecies, her causing a big scene and commotion. It's not forbidding women from speaking in church. It's forbidding women from being disruptive and disrespectful to their husbands in church. It's not that we literally have to wash each other's feet. The biblical command is that we serve one another. We all have showers. We can wash our own feet, okay? The idea is that we serve one another, and the cultural expression of that is foot washing. When the Bible says that we should pray without ceasing, that doesn't mean that we literally pray without ceasing. You would never be able to sleep. You're trying to have a conversation with me, and I'm like, and then, God, I just pray that you'd bless It'd be super weird. The idea is that you should always have a prayerful spirit. You should always be depending upon God. Prayer for you should come as naturally as breathing, not that you literally never cease. When the Bible tells us to deal with sin, to cut off our hand, to gouge out our eye, it's not that we're all literally to look like pirates. Rather, we're to do whatever we need to do to deal with sin. That's the idea. So when the Bible gives a command, you have to say, what is the actual command versus what is just the cultural expression? And people will confuse those. Some people will say that the cultural expression is what's commanded. Other people will err on the other side. What they'll say is, well, Zach, homosexuality is actually okay because that was just Paul's culture. 
The problem with that is that that's not the reason Paul gives. Paul doesn't say homosexuality is sin because my culture. He bases it on creation and theology and other Bible things. Well, Zach, then women can teach because that was just their culture. Their their culture believed that women were second-class citizens. No, that doesn't work either because if you look at what Paul actually says, the reason he won't allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man has nothing to do with his culture, nothing to do with the education of women or any of those kind of things. He bases it off of the creation order and the fall order. So here's how you know, Zach, how do I know what the Bible's commanding versus what's just a cultural expression from that command? Two things. One, the context. What is the context of what's going on? And two, community. Interpret the Bible with other people so that they can press you. Those will be your safeguards from having weird interpretations. Look at the last phrase. All the churches of Christ greet you. That's not like the denomination, Church of Christ. What he's saying is all the churches that love and know Jesus are greeting you, okay? Paul sees the church at Rome belonging to the larger church. We talked about this in ecclesiology. There's the universal church, all true Christians who hold correct orthodox doctrine that have been regenerated by the Spirit. And then that that universal church shows itself in a bunch of individual instantiations and a bunch of individual churches, individual assemblies. But Paul wants to unite the two. Dear church at Rome that I've never even met, because you hold the same gospel that I do, you belong to the universal church. Well, what are we supposed to learn in wrapping up and finishing up from this text today? If you're a visitor, come back. We typically do other things than just weird names like Philologus. But here's some things we're supposed to see from this text today, okay? One, I want you to see that the gospel unites different kinds of people. The way that people are actually reconciled never happens apart from the gospel. That happens for a generation maybe, and then it falls into chaos again if you don't have the gospel. The gospel is the glue that binds the people of God together, okay? I also want you to see how God uses regular people for ministry, ministry, especially if you're a woman, I want you to see that just because uh, you cannot be a pastor, elder, teach, or exercise authority over men, you still have an infinite, almost, other ways that you can serve the body, okay? How many men in here, if you think through it, were actually saved a lot of times through the faith of their faithful mothers? Faith of their faithful mothers, okay? But I also want you to see this. Christianity is meant to be done in community. Paul is not a Lone Ranger Christian. Paul's not a Lone Ranger missionary. Even for somebody as great as the Apostle Paul... He has to have people help him financially. He has to have people put a roof over his head. He has to have people deliver his letters. He has to have people greet one another. If Paul can't do Christianity by himself, you and I especially can't. You and I especially can't. I want you to see the strong community element within this passage. I think those are the big three things that God wants us to take away from this text this morning, okay? So I want to end by giving you a little list of people I think you should greet. Here Paul writes to this church and he says, these are the people you should trust. These are the people who are on my team. These are the people that are part of Team Jesus that I want you to trust. I'd love to give you a little list of people to greet. You ready? If I were to write a letter to Parkway, I would say something like this. Greet my brothers Athanasius, Ambrose, and St. Augustine. Greet Anselm. Greet Thomas Aquinas. Greet John Wycliffe, William Tyndale, and Martin Luther. Give hearty greetings to John Calvin, Ulrich Zwingli, John Knox, Thomas Cranmer, and John Owen. Especially welcome Jonathan Edwards, Hermann Bovink, B.B. Warfield, Charles Spurgeon, and John Piper. I have learned much from J.I. Packer, R.C. Sproul, Tim Keller, Wayne Grudem, D.A. Carson. Extend a greeting to G.K. Beale, Al Mohler, Tom Schreiner, Alistair McGrath, and Alvin Plantinga. What Paul is doing is he's saying, these are the people you can trust. These are fellow workers in the gospel. And my list could go on. These are not like the only faithful people. I just wanted to mention some faithful people, some theologians and stuff that we like. Let's pray together as those helping serve communion come up to pass out the elements.
Almighty God, we thank you for this text. Confess that though it's a weird text, that we pray that you would use it to shape our hearts. I pray for anybody in here who has an element of sexism, where they actually think men are better than women or women are better than men, that they would repent of that. Conversely, I pray for anybody who is more feministic or egalitarian that thinks there are no differences between men and women when it comes to authority in the home and in the church, that they would repent of that. The Bible always rebukes us. The Bible always cuts us and offends us before it heals us. I pray for everyone in here that you might use them. I pray that uh, they might think of ways where they can be used, just with the natural giftings, the natural talents, the natural positions in life where you have them. I pray that you would uh, help us realize that we need community. We need one another. If the Apostle Paul can't do ministry by himself, we especially can't. We love you and we thank you. We want to ask all of this in Christ's name. Amen.